news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hello podcast listeners, Carly here. Author Accelerator is on a mission to change the way people learn to write books. Instead of writers struggling to figure things out on their own, Author Accelerator trains book coaches to give writers the real accountability, editorial feedback, and emotional support needed to write books worth reading. They offer a writer matchmaking service to pair writers with the best book coach for their project. They also offer a variety of events for writers ranging from free workshops to high ticket incubators aimed at getting your polished manuscript or book proposal in front of the eyes of the industry's top agents. And I am one of those agents. Whether you're ready to hire a book coach or you're thinking of becoming one yourself, you can learn more at authoraccelerator.com. That's authoraccelerator.com. Today's guest is the author of the award-winning Secrets of the Sands series and young adult novels Summer Constellations and Kissing Frogs. Her debut baby board book, Give Me a Snickle, comes out this April. She's a former literary agent, current freelance editor and writing coach. The first book in the Sand series, The Lost Scroll of the Physician, has been nominated for three Canadian Children's Book Awards and the most recent installment in the series, The Oracle of Avaris, just launched this year. It's my pleasure to welcome Alicia Seveny. 
Alicia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Bianca. Thank you so much for having me on here. I'm very excited. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you on and to pick your brain because we haven't had a ton of children's book authors, middle grade authors, etc., etc. on the show. We've had a few YA authors. And this is something that we have a whole bunch of our listeners who are interested in. And so who better to pick their brain than you? Because you've also been a literary agent. So you've really coming at it from all these different angles when it comes to the industry. Could you speak a bit about like that background of yours and how it's informed your writing, if it has at all? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you're an agent, you just read so many submissions. So you kind of get a feel for what works and what doesn't work. So it's kind of like a crash course, it kind of in writing, I think as well, editing and all the reading that you do, all the submissions that you do. You also are a little bit more aware of what publishers and editors are looking for, though that changes frequently. But yeah, I think just reading all the submissions and getting a feel for what works and doesn't work and incorporating that into your own writing was a bit helpful for sure. Something that I also want to ask about, because a ton of people seem to go, oh, I have this idea for a children's book. I mean, most people, our listeners will understand, you'll be at a party and someone will be like, oh, I have this amazing idea for a book. It's going to be a bestseller. I just need the time to write it one day. Uh, and then you really want to smack them. But especially people have this thing about children's books. They seem to think it's so easy and they seem to think the same of YA. But it's my understanding that it's actually one of the most competitive genres. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's a very competitive genre. I mean, I think everything in publishing is. There's just so much out there these days. But it's, yeah, it's it's not easy to kind of write, you know, to, to write middle grade and YA fiction in terms of where you feel like you're not kind of trying to tell a morality tale or teach a lesson or kind of speaking down to kids. So you really have to put yourself in the mindset of the age of your protagonist and, and really be there in that, in that body and in that space and kind of remember what it felt like. So, and I think a lot of people can do that, but yeah, it is, it's not as, especially, you know, picture books are, are really hard as well because you're, you have a limited, more of a limited word count. So, and then the illustrations tell a part of the story as well. I just, my, the baby board book that's coming out in April, I actually ended, they ended up using photographs, which was great. So, but I mean, everyone always thinks they can write a book and maybe you can, and that's wonderful if you can, but it is, it's a lot harder than I think people realize to like sit down and make yourself write every day and kind of have that completed manuscript. Yeah. And could you tell us a bit, because you started off with YA, then you moved to, so the, the Secrets of the Sands, is that classified as middle grade? Could you tell our readers a bit about that series and then your change from YA to this particular genre? Yeah. Um, so I started off with young adult and my first two novels were um, contemporary romances, young adult novels. And then I switched to middle grade and it wasn't even, I think it was just the voice, like my protagonist, she's 13 in the book. But it's kind of interesting though, because even though it is middle grade, I feel like it is upper middle grade and can kind of be, you can read it as YA. Adults actually read it and love it because in ancient Egypt at 13, you were basically an adult. So there are a lot of things in these books that where she's dealing with like real world, like situations where like they've had people thinking, oh, these kids are only 12, 13 and they're going through the desert and they're off to find this mysterious oracle and they're having all these adventures. But they were basically, they were basically adults at that point. So it's kind of an interesting, the historical fiction and the age was, it was a bit of an interesting mix. So I'm trying to get that kind of right. Well, I still wanted it to be relatable, but 
It, and, and it is kind of cool for middle graders to read about these kids like really doing really cool stuff. So the series, The Secret of the Sands, it follows a character named Sesha and her friends. She's searching for this mysterious scroll for the pharaoh. It's something that may have implicated, be implicated in her parents' death. They died in a mysterious fire, as parents are wont to do in middle grade novels. <laughs> it's all about her searching for the scroll. And then in the next book, they go into the desert in search of this mysterious oasis. And then in the third and final book, The Oracle of Avaris, they're in the Hyksos city of Avaris, which is on the northern delta on the Nile. And it so kind of follows them, and they're in search of this, another mysterious, mysterious seems to be a key theme, sect of hidden priestesses. So I'm kind of following her adventure, and they're all connected, and each one kind of picks up where the last one left off. So yeah, it's, it's based, the scroll that is in the title of The Lost Scroll of the Physician is based on a real ancient artifact. You can find it at the New York Academy of Medicine. And it was kind of the first document that showed that the ancient Egyptians had a really rational and scientific view of medicine and were very advanced. And the book series, kind of one of the themes is the blending of magic and science and, and all that kind of what's magic, what's science and things that we thought were magic were now science. And it's all, it's so that's kind of one of the themes. So it's, yeah, it's found family and believing in yourself and having great adventures. Amazing. And something you said there about how much of middle grade is parents dying in mysterious circumstances. And I think one of that is because for kids to have any kind of fun or any kind of adventure, they can't be supervised, right? So it's losing that constant supervision. But I also think there's something in there because so many kids, that's their biggest fear. I don't have children myself, but I know my nieces and nephews and godchildren all went through these terrible phases where they were constantly terrified that something was going to happen to their parents and then who would look after them. And I feel like having kids who have these amazing adventures after their parents pass away is also very empowering for children to know that there are these possibilities for them of a life, even if tragedy strikes in that way. So for me, it's, it's interesting how that tends to be explored in that. But you also said something about the difference between middle grade and upper middle grade and then YA. So could you give us an understanding of that so that we all know what those classifications mean? Yeah, sure. So, so middle grade is generally 8 to 12. And then upper middle grade, I would say, I mean, like 10 to 14, 15. And then YA is usually 14, 15 to like 17, 18. But a lot of genres do overlap. And I mean, that's just off the top of my head. Don't quote me on those exact age ranges specifically. It's just more about the age of the protagonist and kind of, and then YA will deal with a lot of more adult things Some that some middle grades will deal with maybe in a more vaguer way or not so explicit way, which they, they can still deal with the issues and stuff, but just more of a age appropriate way. So, I mean, when I wrote my middle grade books, I kind of, I was, I was torn. I was like, should I make this YA or should I make this middle grade? And it just, it just so happened that the, the way it came out was middle grade. And also I did something a bit different for middle, well, I guess it's not so different anymore, but traditionally middle grade was written third person past tense, like Lila walked to the store. Whereas I, because of my YA background, felt more natural writing these books in first-person present tense, which is generally how YA novels are written in. So, so that was kind of a little bit of a, a different approach, I guess, to the voice. But I am seeing now that is becoming more common for middle grade, the first-person present tense, because it's a, it's a lot more immediate and it puts you right into the voice of the character. So that, that can also be a genre specification as well. But those are, I think it's all starting to get a little bit blurred now and, and you have a, a variety of different voices and, and tenses. And so, yeah, so, but I, I think that these books are kind of, maybe is because of the death of the parents that like my daughter's turning 11. She 
She's like, oh, I don't know if I can read that yet. And she's quite an advanced reader. So, and I feel like really the sweet spot for these books would probably be like 10, 11 to like 15, 16. And also for reluctant readers as well. So people who maybe are older, but have like, for whatever reason, maybe they're just not reading at super high advanced levels, but they're, they can still read engaging stories and high-low, which is a great genre that's becoming more popular for readers as well. It's just making books more accessible to everyone and stories more accessible to everyone, which is the ideal thing. Amazing. Alicia, I did ask you to give our listeners advice for those of them who are writing in the genre or who are considering writing in the genre. So what advice do you have for them? So my first advice is to read in the genre. So if people set up to write a middle grade novel and they haven't read any middle grade, current middle grade novels or, or whatever. So read, read a lot in the genre and find out kind of where your interests lie um, in terms of the genre within the genre. So for example, my genre is middle grade, but in it, it's also historical fiction and adventure fiction. It's got a little bit of blend of everything, but maybe you're more drawn to, to romance, but I guess, again, that's more YA, but or horror, or whatever it is, you know, figure out exactly what it is you want to write, narrow down your genre and your voice, and then read a lot with those kinds of books. And yeah, just, it's very simple, but also so difficult to do. It's just like, write, join a writing group, people who are the same level of you as you, or doesn't have to be the same level, but getting feedback on your work, it teaches you so much more than if you're working kind of solitarily and, and just by yourself. And, and you, it teaches you how to write as well, you know, when you get feedback and then you see, oh, you maybe use like way too many adverbs and, or, you know, that's just an example, but like, or just seeing where you're, what areas you can brush up in and then in terms of your writing. So practicing your writing, joining a writing group, getting feedback on your writing, reading in your genre, reading the genre you want to write in. And yeah, just writing a story that you care about and that you're passionate about because you need something that's going to motivate you to keep writing when it gets tough to finish those pages or to get it out. And you really need something that you're absolutely 100% passionate about and would love to see in the world because it's hard to kind of keep going. Even for published writers, it's hard. You're like, yeah, is anyone ever going to read this? And so you have to write it for more than just the, the fact of having a, a published book or getting published. It has to be something that is powerful and has meaning for you, I think, a story that you, you need, that needs to be told. And how do you guard against doing that whole talking down to kids or trying to have, there's some lesson you're trying to teach them, et cetera, et cetera. Is that something you, when you sat down to write the series, you had to very purposefully say to yourself, I'm going to avoid doing this. What advice do you have for our listeners in terms of that? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great question. I think getting feedback from kids as well like for your when you get feedback in your writing like get someone in your your the demographic you're writing for to kind of read it and see my YA novels I had to be a little bit more careful because they have environmental themes and I didn't want to be too kind of over the head with the environmental themes so I wanted to do it in a way where I wasn't like preachy but like at the same time the environmental theme is still woven in there and and you still get a sense that the author cares about this and I think if the author cares about it that will show up in their writing um, and you just have to make sure that you're not, yeah, you're just kind of not like hitting people over the head with like the message that you're wanting to tell and, and that it will infuse into the work naturally. And it will just by you caring about that theme or whatever it is, you know, the messaging, but also kind of focusing on your characters and making sure that that's like your character's journey is the primary goal of the story, not to teach something. I mean, that's a nice byproduct, of course, but like just focusing on your character and what they're learning as they go along this journey. 
and yeah, just making making it all about your characters, I suppose. It must be difficult to strike a balance in terms of not talking down to your audience, but at the same time, not going above their heads. And again, how do you tackle that? Because is there certain language that you need to use, certain language that's inaccessible? What is your approach to that? Yeah, that's a great question. So when I wrote, I, a lot of my language, I, mean, I tend to write like a little bit with a higher vocabulary in the hopes that when kids are reading it, even if they don't know what the word means itself, you, they can learn just, you know, through the context. And they're, they're kind of, because I remember reading books when I was a kid, and if I didn't know a word, I would just keep on going. And, I, and you kind of figure it out as you're reading. So it's a great way of also teaching vocabulary without trying to teach vocabulary. There are a couple instances where I would read through, and if there was too many high-level vocabulary words on one page, I would maybe substitute one or two. But at the same time, I, I never wanted to sacrifice artistic integrity as well. And also, I think that kids are a lot smarter than people give them credit for sometimes, and they're like, oh, that's such an advanced vocabulary word. Like, And I'm like, no, no, they'll, they'll, they'll look at it. They'll, they'll know what this is. And, and editors help with that too. So maybe they're like, nope use a different word that's way too extreme or too advanced. And so you have to kind of, it is, it is a balance. And it's like, you have to kind of pick and choose what your battles and, you know, I really want this word or no, yeah, maybe this word works just as great. And it's, it's a balancing act to walk. But I always like to err on the side that I like to give kids a bit more credit than people usually do and just be like, yep, they'll, they'll get this. Yeah. I mean, that was advice from Brett Bennett, who said, always assume that you have an intelligent reader. And I think that definitely applies to middle grade as well. Are there any subjects that are taboo in terms of the approach in middle grade? I remember an episode of Sex in the City that I really loved when Carrie was stalking Big's ex-wife who was in publishing and pretended to pitch an idea. And the wife was like, what idea do you have? And Carrie was like, we have this little girl. And every time she smokes a cigarette, she, poof, she disappears to some place. And Big's ex-wife was like, we don't really want to see children smoking in middle grade, but that's pretty obvious. But in terms of other advice you have, are there things, I remember a while back, people were like, oh, you shouldn't be talking about death to children, etc. and these things. But you were seeing it now in even younger books. And I know from my experience in South Africa, with so many children who were losing their parents to HIV AIDS, etc., that children were learning about death at a very young age. So that's when they needed to be spoken to about it so that they could understand it. What's your take on that? I feel like it, the way it's handled is more important than what you say. So I think it is important to deal with de questions like death and other sensitive subjects. If that's something that you want to do, if that's something that your story is telling you to do, generally, you know, middle graders like to laugh. They like to have fun. They like to have adventures. So yes, there's a time and place for everything. Um, and yes, there are topics that come up that should absolutely be addressed if that's something pertinent to your story. But again, like just addressing issues like for the sake of addressing them is, is, is that that's like a whole other thing where, you know, maybe better suited to nonfiction books. So if people are actually looking for something on this topic, then they can find it. In a story, you know, you're going to have, yeah, people die all the time and it, it, it's, it's sad and it's shocking. So if you, if in my books, because, you know, the parents do die in a fire, but it happens off screen. It's kind of, it does, it's obviously a huge thing for the books, but it's done. And also the ancient Egyptians had a different view of life and death. So, and I think that it speaks to a lot of people now, like whatever your spiritual beliefs are, kind of people maybe are not just gone, they're in a different place. So the way that it was presented was a little bit, I think for me, more like these people aren't gone forever. And the Egyptians believe that they came back every night, the, you know, the, the Ka and the Ba reunited in the tomb and and then they went off to the land. 
one part of their spirit, they had like the spirit was broken up to five different pieces. And one part would stay and watch over the family and the children, and the other would go to the land of reeds, which was their version of heaven. And then they would come back every night and reunite in the tomb, which is why they had mummies. They had to have a body, the physical body, for the spirit to come back to and join back together. So in a way, I did talk about death, but I did it so kind of like in a way where, I mean, again, not overtly, where for, for kids are learning about like a different culture in ancient Egypt, ancient Egyptian culture. So I think how topics are addressed are more important than what topic is addressed, if that makes sense. I think I've spoken about it before on the show. There's a great middle grade book called From the Desk of Zoe Washington, which deals with the incarceration of a parent and what it's like for a child to grow up and your father has been in prison, etc., etc. And I don't suppose many books deal with that, but it was done in a really, really great way. And there is that adventure stuff and there is the fun and there is the laughter and there is the humor in the book as well. So that definitely balances that out. Alicia, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your amazing advice with us. For our listeners, we will link to Alicia's books on our bookshop.org affiliate page so that you can find them there. And yeah, Alicia, we hope to have you back with the next book. It was, it was so lovely chatting with you. For those of our listeners who are in Ontario or Toronto and surrounds, on the 30th of April, I will be at Blue Heron Books in Uxbridge for Canadian Independent Bookstore Day. Now, I'll be joined by other Canadian authors like Terry Fallis, as well as Marissa Stapley, who is the best-selling Reese's Book Club pick author of Lucky. We'll be there from 1 to 3 p.m. and we would absolutely love to see you. Come and join us, say hi and support an indie bookstore at the same time. This is just a reminder about the courses we've got coming up. On the 28th of April, Cece will be hosting a writing tension webinar at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. To sign up for those, go to my website, biancamaray.com, and look under the courses tab. And then you've all been asking me for another writing group matchup or a beta reader matchup. And so I've decided to do the great beta reader matchup. Go to my website, biancamaray.com, look under the Beta Reader tab to get more information about how to sign up for that. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. So you can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. 
It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they've been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology. So it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're gonna get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's guest is an amateur baker and author who writes about queer love. Originally from Florida, man, Florida, queer love. Yeah, yeah. we'll discuss that shortly. They received their MA in <laughs> writing and publishing from Emerson College in Boston. They live in New York City with their wife and various houseplants. Chef's Kiss is their debut novel. It's my pleasure to welcome TJ Alexander. TJ, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Absolutely loved Chef's Kiss. It makes me want to do the Chef's Kiss when I talk about the book. So, so there you go. Thank you. But yeah, before we discuss the book, can we please just discuss what the hell is happening in Florida? Yeah. <sighs> You know, I don't know, man. It's <laughs> it's rough out there. Like my bio says, I did grow up in Florida. It's always been a weird place. I think most people can agree on that. Right now, it's it's real bad. You know, I still have family who live there. It's ostensibly, I should be, you know, visiting them uh, once in a while. I'm not really feeling it right now, to be honest. Not really feeling it. I feel a lot of sympathy and heartache for those queer people who are still living there and want to live there. You know, it's, it's home to a lot of people, many of them queer. And I just, yeah, I just, can I curse on this podcast? <laughs> I'm so sorry. The podcast is called The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. Oh, that's so true. That's true. That okay. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, fuck Ron DeSantis. Like, I don't know what else to say. I'm, I, I'm not a huge political thinker or anything. That's, so that's, that's the best I can do as far as explaining uh, my stance on that, I guess. 
Absolutely. You took the words right out of my mouth. All right, TJ, will you take us through your journey to publication? Because we have so many emerging writers out there who are waiting for their one yes from an agent, and then they're waiting for their one yes from a publisher. And every single writer's journey to publication is different. And we find a lot of inspiration in hearing about how that happened for different writers. So can you take us through that from when you began writing the book until now that it's pretty much out? Sure. So I wrote Chef's Kiss during like the 2020 early lockdown era. I finished a a pretty good draft of it. I got it into pretty good shape with the help of some really amazing friends and first readers. And I always thought like, this is just going to be my little pandemic hobby, my little uh, coping mechanism or what have you. And when I did finish it, I thought, you know, this, this could be something. Let's, let's just see. Let's just see where this goes. So I started the querying process and got some pretty good feedback and was put in touch with my current agent, Larissa Melo-Pelinowski from Jill Grinberg. And she's just been this amazing advocate, amazing cheerleader, so incredibly supportive. I signed with her before the year was out. And then early 2021, we went out on submission. (laughs) That was probably the most nerve-wracking moment of my life, uh, I guess you could say. And um, we, we got some really great interest and at auction ended up signing with my current publisher, Atria, for a two book deal. So, I mean, that all makes it sound like super smooth and like one thing after another bing, bam, boom. And in a lot of ways, I was very lucky that things did go very smoothly, but it was a lot of no's in that querying process. And it was a lot of tense moments of back and forth while we were out on submission. So yeah, that's, I guess, in a nutshell, what my journey was like. And you say you were put in touch with your agent, as opposed to what you queried them. Could you give us an understanding of that? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I mean, yes. Larissa was one of the agents that I queried and who responded. And she was, I think, the first one that I spoke to that I was like, oh, she gets it. She gets what I'm trying to do here. Um, so I was I was very fortunate and lucky enough to have several agents interested in speaking with me. And I think of all of them, they were all so wonderful and at the top of their game, great folks that I would have loved working with, and it was a difficult decision. So yeah, but that's what I mean when I when I say, oh, I got in touch with Larissa. I guess that was just me trying to make it sound a lot more casual than it actually was. Yeah. I was like, I don't know the right people, man. I haven't just been able to just get in touch with agents. Do you remember how you pitched the book to her? Because something we're always doing on the show is looking at query letters. We have agents on the show who I look at query letters that our listeners submit, and we try and help them polish those query letters in terms of comps and all kinds of things to make it as polished as it can be before it goes out. So we always like to hear the kind of pitch that successful authors, those who manage to land their agents, what their query letters were like. Yeah, I can actually give you a really good idea of what my query letter was like, because it ended up being the copy on the back of the book. Um Holy heck. So you wrote a damn good query letter then. I think I would, you know, I hate to toot my own horn, but let's, I'll toot it for a bit. Yeah, it was a query letter that went through a lot of different 
polishings and iterations. And I think by the time it reached Larissa, it was pretty good. I worked in publishing for a hot minute in a past life. And I know that one of the best ways to get people to say yes to you is to do a lot of the work (laughs) for them. (laughs) Like before it reaches them, a lot of the work should already be done and off their plate. It's just, that's very attractive, obviously, to a lot of people. So yeah, my query letter, the meat of it was what ended up almost word for word being the back copy of the book. And as far as comps go, though, that was the where I struggled, I think, because at the time that I was querying, there were no traditionally published romances with a non-binary love interest. You know, now we have Anita Kelly's amazing book, Love and Other Disasters, which I love, 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 and everyone should go read. But, you know, at the time I was like, where, how, who am I supposed to be comping this book to? You know, I was looking at other queer romances, and some of them were and in some ways similar. And I was just like, God, everyone's going to comp to Red, White, and Royal Blue, for example, was one of my comps. And I felt like it, that was the closest I could get, even though I'm sure many people feel this way about comps. Like, my book is so special and different. <laughs> but like, it, it, it was, that was a difficult part for me to say, like, okay, these are the books that I think would be good comparisons, because there just wasn't a lot out there at that moment. Yeah, and that is a difficult part. And especially, like you say, when there aren't books out there that are like yours, because publishers are always saying we want something completely different, completely fresh, but it must be like a whole bunch of other things, which is incredibly frustrating. And then, like you say, trying to find the right comp when there isn't something out there. But how amazing, TJ, that you are now the person that other people are going to be comping to because you're sort of paving the way for them in terms of that. Now, in terms of the genre conventions, on the show, we talk all the time about genre conventions and certain tropes and why they work and why they don't work, etc., etc. So would you classify Chef's Kiss as like an enemies to lovers kind of trope when it comes to that? Oh, for sure. I've definitely used that trope to describe it on Twitter and, you know, other places where I think that's going to resonate really well. I was thinking about, (laughs) I was thinking about using that trope specifically recently because I'm rereading the book, you know, in preparation (laughs) for it to coming out. You know, it's been a long time since I went through the last edits for it. So I'm just like trying to refresh my memory about like, what the hell did I write? And as I'm reading it again, I'm like, you know, they weren't, were, were they enemies? I mean, Simone, the, the main character, the story is being told from her point of view. She definitely <laughs> sees them as enemies <laughs> at the start. She definitely has some antagonistic feelings towards Ray from the very beginning. And then, you know, we get to see her slowly soften and become more friendly. And then finally, in the end, they become a lover's situation. But I think from Ray's point of view, they were never like enemies there was never like a lot of animosity on in Ray's worldview but there it, there's definitely an element of like opposites attract and they're they're polar opposites who eventually get close and friendly and then eventually get to be more so yes i think enemies for lovers is definitely one of the tropes that i have used for describing this yeah cuz when i was reading it i was like i was getting sort of that vibe but then i'm busy watching Bridgerton season two at the same time. And that's like a major 
enemies to lover. They both freaking hate each other. And you can see that at every step of the way. What do you think it is about this particular trope that people love so much, especially in the in the romance genre? Well, you know, it's fun. It's funny. I can only speak for what I love so much about it personally, but I think a lot of people probably feel the same way. I think there's something very charming watching two people who are so different or who maybe get off on the wrong foot and that evolving and growing and changing into something completely different. It's very sweet in a way to see someone, for example, like Simone, who's kind of got a hard outer shell, maybe a little bit of a tough cookie, and sort of watch her turn into something a little bit more willing to be vulnerable, willing to love and be loved. It, I think that's what is so great about romance in general, is that we get to watch people, however it happens, reach that point. And yeah, I think that Enemies to Lovers is a great payoff because there is that built-in <laughs> that built-in barrier for them to get over, which is like, oh, at first you are not, this is not love at first sight. This is not immediate swooning. This is going to take some, this is going to take some time to get over yourself. I think that's, I think that's something a lot of people can vibe with. Yeah. And I feel like it's something that's gone back so far in terms of like our psychology as well, because I remember when I was a little girl and a boy would come and kind of smack me or, I don't know, pull my hair or whatever, adults would always go, oh, it's because he secretly likes you kind of thing. And that's we've kind of evolved with that in terms of going, well, no, like boys must not show their affection by smacking girls. They need to show their affection by, you know, bringing us flowers and chocolate or telling us how brilliant we are, how amazing our minds are, et cetera, et cetera. But there definitely is something in that going back a long way that I wonder if that kind of informs so much of our approach to this genre, because I also enjoy this trope, but I've never been able to really pinpoint why it is one that I enjoy so much. But I think you've articulated it much better. I think it's to show how love can transform people and how we can be sort of changed and made better through this relationship with somebody else. What do you think? I think that's an interesting point. I, I've never really considered sort of the enemies to lovers, like, you know, starting off on the wrong foot kind of, you know, the trope or genre of being maybe informed by, oh, <laughs> you know, as as kids were, were taught that like any attention is must be some kind of at its very basic level positive in some way. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's true necessarily. Like. I think what I find interesting about enemies to lovers, I mean, I don't know if I would necessarily read something where the enemies part is like very cruel or very harassy. <laughs> I don't know what the, the best word for that is. That would sort of ook me out, I think, because that's just not that's just not my jam. But yeah, I I think there is there could be a darkness to that where there is a little bit of like, well, maybe the attention that I'm getting isn't necessarily positive, but like, dang, it is attention. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It. I don't think that's what's happening with Simone and Ray. Exactly. Like their tiffs are very cutesy and lighthearted, I would say. But yeah, I think that there is, maybe we are exploring this, like, I don't know, this desire to have those situations that a lot of us have gone through in life where we are getting bad attention, attention that we have not asked for, and sort of like 
working through that, turning it on its head in like, well, here's how that could have worked out better for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that it's, makes any sense to you. It's interesting because I, I really feel like these tropes are rooted in something deeper. So if we have any psychologists out there who are listening to the show, if you have an explanation for us, please, please let us know beyond that we find this kind of thing very, very entertaining. Yeah, I, it's it's just something that uh, sort of keeps me guessing. But yeah, it, this was done so well. It wasn't like these awful people treating each other badly from Ray's side. I just definitely didn't get that. From Simone's side, definitely did get that. Which, you know, again shows that the whole enemies to lovers trope can be done in different ways. So it's, you think, oh, it's a trope. There's only one way to do it. There's varying degrees of ways of doing it. And there's so many different ways to make it your own. So that your enemies to lovers is different to anyone else's enemies to lovers as well. Could you tell us, TJ, why you chose the point of view that you did? Because this is told from Simone's perspective. Is there a reason why you didn't want to specifically have some of Ray, some of Simone? What was your thinking there in terms of deciding who was the main point of view character to tell the story? Yeah, so... There were a couple reasons the story ended up being told from someone's point of view. Like, the main reason is that I personally do not enjoy writing going back and forth between different points of view. I feel like it can be repetitive. It, like, it can feel repetitive when you're writing it to be like going over the same scenes or actions or, you know, an event from two different perspectives. It kind of feels like well, we, we just watched this happen. Like, why would I show it happening from somebody else's point of view? And there are some amazing writers out there who can do that in an interesting way. For me, though, it, it was not working out. And on another level, I was really wary of delving too intimately into Ray's point of view because there has been historically in media where queer people and especially trans and non-binary people are portrayed. It, there has been historically a trend in media that is made by cis people for a cis audience where these characters sort of fulfill a role of like, oh, this tragic, you know, sad life that this person is leading. And I really didn't want to fall down that rabbit hole, even like on accident. I didn't want to give a reader, whether they be cis or trans or non-binary, a a reason to think that that's what I wanted them to feel towards Ray. I didn't want Ray to be that object for them. And I did go back and forth on this a, a lot because we do get to see through Simone's eyes a lot of the struggle that Ray is going through. But I think at the end of the day, I, the story that I wanted to tell was a story of a non-binary person who, like me, you know, wants to be loved and to show from Simone's point of view, like this unequivocal, when she reaches the point where she realizes that she's in love with Ray, it's this unequivocal, protective, like she's just ready to ride or die, right? Like that's, that's the dream. That's the fantasy that I wanted to explore for Ray and to give to myself and any non-binary person or otherwise who, who needs that, who needs to see that. So that's my long-winded reasoning. Uh, sorry about that for, for why I decided to tell the story from Simone's point of view. No, that's an excellent reason. And we're always saying to our listeners, 
Some people tend to fall into a point of view because it's the one they just happen to like writing. You'll say, why did you write this in third person? And they go, oh, that's what I feel comfortable writing or first person is what I feel comfortable writing. And I firmly believe that every story has got a point of view that is going to best serve that story. And so we're always saying to our listeners, and I say to my creative writing students, pick a point of view very deliberately. You need to kind of eliminate the others because they are not going to best serve the story. And you've just perfectly shown now the reasoning in terms of why you did that. It wasn't just something that you accidentally fell into, which is exactly how we should be approaching point of view. Now, in terms of the genre, in terms of rom-com, can you give our listeners some advice in terms of maintaining tension? Because we say all novels are about a character wanting something really, really badly. And then it's our job as the writers to kind of torture them and throw all these obstacles in their path and kind of stop them from getting this thing that they want. And it's in the struggle that tension is created and the stakes keep getting upped. So do you have advice for our listeners in terms of perhaps there is a particular structure of story writing you followed here so that you knew at this point of the novel, there had to be a false victory or a false defeat? Or how did you approach that? So yeah, I didn't have like a strictly mapped out, like, there are some romance novels, and I love them, but there are some romance novels that this, at the 25% mark, this has to happen. At the 50% mark, this has to happen. There has to be a kiss this many pages in, or whatever. And I didn't feel the need to kind of be that strict with myself, that disciplined. And I knew going into writing Chef's Kiss that it was going to be a slow burn, that there was going to not necessarily be a lot of those notes hit that you might see in a more traditional, I guess, rom-com. But there were beats that I knew needed to be hit, and there were big set pieces, is what I think of them in my mind, that needed to be kind of earned. But I knew that because it was going to be this very, very long, drawn-out romance where they're kind of antagonistic towards each other at first, and then they become more friendly, and then very, very slowly they eventually confess how they feel to each other. I knew that that was going to need a little bit of what I like to call emotional edging, which is, you know, how do you keep it interesting and tense for the reader? And in the case of Ray and Simone, it's because the story is being told from Simone's point of view, from her perspective. And she doesn't know what we know, which is that Ray is already head over heels for her way, way before she realizes it. And so every scene after a certain point, well, you know, when they're together and she's just pining her butt off, and we're just like, oh, my God, you idiot. Oh, my God, you fool. Like, that's that's the good stuff. I love that stuff so much because it's funny because it's funny that we get to know something that they don't know. And we feel so smart. <laughs> so, yeah, that's if you are writing a a rom-com that has that kind of structure where you know it's going to be a slow burn and there's not going to be a payoff until the very, 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 very end, you know, in terms of them getting together. I would say to think about that, to think about that kind of tension, because there's a lot of humor that comes out of that tension. And that's what I find very enjoyable. Yeah. And for our listeners, remember that tension is created, like TJ was saying, when 
the reader knows something that the character doesn't know. When one character knows something, the other character doesn't know, etc. These are all ways to create tension because at some point the reader just wants to grab the character and go, for goodness sake, I can tell you what's happening here. Open your damn eyes. Why aren't you paying attention? And so that's an awesome way of creating tension. TJ, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. For our listeners, we're putting Chef's Kiss on our bookshop.org affiliate page. If you purchase it through there, you are supporting TJ, you are supporting an independent bookstore, and you are supporting the podcast. TJ, we wish you much, much luck with Chef's Kiss. Fingers crossed that we get to see it on a series or on film one day. Oh, thank you so much. That's so, that's so lovely to hear. Thank you so much for having me. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another comps session where we get to pick the brain of someone who works at an indie bookstore as they help answer all your questions on comps. So just a bit of an introduction. Today's guest or helper is the assistant store manager at East City Bookshop in Washington, D.C., and is a book talk content creator. We're not at the shop or in one of D.C.'s many museums. You can find her on TikTok dishing out queer book recommendations. She has been featured in Bitch Me Book Riot and the New York Times. It's my pleasure to welcome Lainey Rose Riser. Lainey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is an absolute delight and I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to have you here. For our listeners, you'll remember that Emily Summer from East City has joined us. It's one of my absolute favorite independent bookstores. And so any opportunity to interact with their booksellers or, or the management team is amazing. So Lainey, will you kick us off with your recommendations on comps? Yes. Hi there. I am asking for comp titles for my adult contemporary fantasy about an old man cursed with immortality. He doesn't want to bond with any living people because they will die someday and he won't. So instead he goes around hunting ghosts but then ends up in a small town where, shockingly, he ends up bonding with the living people and he decides to stay even though he's still cursed and will lose them someday. Currently, I am comping to The Secret Life of Albert Entwistle, a man called Ove and Under the Whispering Door. The story also features found family, unresolved trauma. It's got some historical elements, but is set in modern day Northwest Ohio and people trying to deal with loss in different ways. Any comp titles you can give me are appreciated. Oh, it's also queer. So uh, bonus points for comp titles with queer characters. Thank you. So the first one, I believe, I really loved the concept of it. And it reminded me a lot of House in the Cerulean Sea by TJ Klune in the sense that like, oh, a grumpy old man finds a family and it's very warm and very loving. It also reminded me a lot of it, it sounded like it had like a nice little cozy vibe to it. And it reminded me of A Psalm for the Wild Built by Becky Chambers, which is one of my favorite novellas, which is also kind of about a character who's very grumpy and doesn't want to be around people. And and then he finds, you know, his robot that he's like, oh, yes, I would love to 
be around you, I guess. Sure, fine, whatever. So it sounded delightful. And they're both queer sci-fi. So that's what that reminded me of. Amazing. Thank you. Next one. Hi there. My name's Felix. I have a young adult seaside fantasy book that is essentially my love of Avatar The Last Airbender and those types of stories put into an Australian seaside context. I'm looking for things that would fit that. It's it's kind of like Legendborn in Girl Finds Mysterious, not society, but group of people. And there's like there's injustice and those areas explored. And I was wondering if you could give me any other comps. Thank you very much. For the second one, the author had mentioned that it had kind of Avatar The Last Airbender vibes. And the YA book, if you're looking for Avatar The Last Airbender vibes, is Jade Fire Gold by June C.L. Pan. That is like, I think the own author... June C.L. Tan has comped her book to Avatar The Last Airbender, so very similar vibes. And he also said that it had, like, you know, a young girl facing injustices. And similarly, in, like, a fantasy Avatar The Last Airbender vibes, it reminded me a lot of Girls of Paper and Fire by Natasha Nan, which is one of my all-time favorite books. It's a gorgeous fantasy world and a young girl and a a lot of young girls who, like, have to kind of band together and take down this demon king. It's incredible. So both of those books kind of sounded in the same wheelhouse as that one. Amazing. Love it. It sounds like the era of Trump. All of us women banding together to take down this evil force. Right. Yes. (laughs) Carry on. Next one. I would love help finding comps for my contemporary paranormal romance and dual POV. Biochemist Sarah Watanabe is discovering her powers, her magical legacy, and a unique talent for integrating magic and science. Kyle Berger, a mage with latent power, is protective of his family and his own magical legacy. A chance encounter with Kyle and his powerful mage mother has Sierra moving away from the sheltered path laid out by a controlling father and honing her supernatural skills while entertaining shameful fantasies about the boss's son. When the beautiful, self-possessed, and grossly overqualified Sierra takes an apprenticeship with his mother, Kyle's protective instincts flare. His suspicions, along with his own magic explorations, lead to a careless and intimate betrayal. When Kyle's reckless spellcasting reveals Sierra's darkest desires, Kyle's attraction and need to protect drive him to make her his. When their magical legacies are threatened by antiquities dealers trading in dark magic and stolen spells, they are drawn into a centuries-old illicit magic trade. As they struggle to thwart those who would dismantle histories of magic, will their passionate bonds overcome their haunting pasts? So the next one reminded me of The Love Hypothesis by Ali Hazelwood meets The X-Hex by Rachel Hawkins. It sounded like it had almost kind of like an academic approach to magic and just the dynamics between the man and the woman reminded me a lot of The Love Hypothesis and The X-Hex is my favorite like hocus pocus, but there's steam in it. And so I loved kind of the concept of Love Hypothesis meets The X-Hex and magic and dark academia. It just sounded very good. Amazing. I, I've been wanting to read the X-Hex for a while. I thoroughly enjoyed Payback's a Witch by Lana yeah. Hopper. That I was like, yeah, and, and the second one's coming out now. The The second in the trilogy is coming out now, so I'm super excited about that one. Yes. Okay, next one. Hi, and thank you for the opportunity to ask for comp suggestions. My book is a young adult speculative fiction coming-of-age novel set 100 years in the future. Two teenage sisters have survived a pandemic that wiped out most of civilization, thanks to their parents having hidden them away from the world just in time. But when they discover that other young people have also survived and have now formed powerful gangs that could kill or enslave them, 
they embark on a mission to try and reach any remaining pockets of civilized communities which believe their mum may have also been able to reach. On the way, they discover more about how the pandemic came about and must face dark truths from the history of their own family. The book deals with themes of gender, feminism, sexual trauma and mental health, environmental harm, spirituality and cults. However, the tone is more lighthearted and warm than the subject matter implies, aiming for something along the lines of Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials series. I've thought about Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower or Lauren James' The Quiet at the End of the World, but I'm not sure either of these are quite right and I'd be really grateful for any other ideas. Thank you so much. I'm a massive fan of the podcast. Thanks, bye. So the next one reminded me of, this one might be a bit of a throwback, but there is a TV show involved. The 100 by Cass Morgan, which became The 100 on the CW, is like apocalypse world, a bunch of teenagers in their like little gangs and they're all fighting against each other and they're trying to find civilization and like romance, trauma, past, horror. Like it is a delightful Delightful might be the wrong word, but it's delightful to watch it be terrible. You know what I mean? And I, the 100 was my introduction to my love of apocalypse things. So that reminded me a lot of that. And it also reminded me of, because the author said that had a little bit more of a a warm tone compared to the content matter, which reminded me of All That's Left in the World by Eric J. Brown, which is a more recent, just came out YA rom-com set in the apocalypse. So if you're looking for something warm and fun in the apocalypse with like a Schitt's Creek kind of vibe, that's the one to go for. And I think that the two of those medias combined sound like what this one is. Oh my word, a dystopian Schitt's Creek. I will, it's like, yeah, take all my money. Take it, take it. (laughs) I want to see that. And it's got like a bright, fun yellow cover, which is so funny because like it's in the apocalypse and a rom-com. Like I'm sold. I'm, I'm totally on board. Awesome. Next one. Hi, Bianca. I am desperate to find comps for my young adult or women's fiction, which is an allegory in the true hero's journey genre. The story is about 29-year-old Beth Parker, who discovers a portal in her garden shed that leads to a spiritual garden where she meets the child version of herself. While helping the child find the lost gift her grandmother gave her, Beth learns to overcome the guilt over her mother's death at the age of seven and the bitterness caused by her father abandoning her shortly after, never to return. When the gift is found, Beth discovers the source of her grandmother's strength that she uses to heal her marriage and change the destructive course of her life. I appreciate any ideas you or your guests may have for comps, and thank you for this much-needed segment of your podcast, Gloria. So this one reminded me a lot of The Magicians by Lev Grossman and Daughter of the Moon Goddess by Su Lin Tan. The Magicians is kind of one of my favorite portal fantasies of like, we're going into another world and like, we're confronting our trauma and our darkest secrets. And Daughter of the Moon Goddess sounded a little bit more like the fantasy side of what this one was talking about with a little bit more spiritual, a little bit more related to her mother and the other things. So both of those books combined reminded me of this one but in particular i was like oh she's going through a portal great the magicians by love christmas <laughs> amazing thank you next one hi i've written a speculative thriller with multiple points of view and dual timelines a single sentence description might be one man's obsession spans a generation trapping a talented empath and her even more powerful daughter in his web of lies 
So this one, I did have to get a little bit of help from my coworker, Morgan, because I don't tend to read a lot of horror thriller kind of things, but it did definitely remind me of Evelyn Hugo, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid in the sense that there are kind of two timelines, the past and the present, and kind of looking back at the past and a woman who is kind of confronting what happened in her past in order to be able to move forward into the future. And that very much reminded me of that. And it's, of course, a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous book. So it reminded me of that. And then also my coworker Morgan recommended Relevator by Daryl Gregory, which is also like a gothic horror and also kind of like a little bit more on the darker side. So if we take, you know, the structure of Evelyn Hugo and turn it into something gothic and horror, it sounds a little bit more like what we're going for here. Amazing. And remember, for our listeners, when you're doing comps, you can absolutely do that. You can say it's the structure of The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo meets the XYZ of this other particular book. So, And I love that book as well. It's, it's weird. The only one of her books I haven't been able to get into was Daisy Jones and the Six. I gave up on that halfway through, but everyone I know loved Daisy Jones and the Six. But my favorite is definitely The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Evelyn Hugo is the love of my life. I adore Adore that book. It's so good. Oh, Dual Timelines, Evelyn Hugo. Done. I also suppose that The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern has dual timelines. And so whenever someone is talking about like, oh, like a, a sci-fi speculative with some dual timelines, I'm like, The Night Circus, easy, done. Amazing. Next one. I am writing adult worldview fantasy set more than 5,000 years in the future dual narrative with a man and a woman as the two stars of the book. The comps I have are Levian's The World Gives Way, because she has a self-contained world, but hers is set out in space, and mine is definitely on this planet. And the other one is Negamatsu's How High We Go in the Dark, because of the merged life forms, because my people sprout from plants. But... That is kind of pushing it a little bit for my book. The man in my book discovers a plant that helps them with visions. And the woman in my book becomes the visionary later. So this one, I the way that the author described it reminded me a lot of This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal L. Motar. It is a gorgeous kind of sci-fi set several thousands of years into the future it's a romance there. It's like very poetically and beautifully written and has a lot of like things that you think you understand. And then you read it again. And you're like, Oh, what just happened? And the way that she was describing it reminded me a lot of the way that novel kind of forms itself together. And it's gorgeous and a romance and sci-fi fantasy set in the future. Awesome. Awesome. Next one. Hey there. I have a question about comps. I have an urban fantasy novel with a loner female protagonist. It's a first-person POV written in the past tense. The protagonist is afflicted with a family curse, so her family sends her away, and in her new town she finds a community of quirky characters. She summons a familiar. There's other talking animal companions. There's a ghost haunting her workplace. The villain of the story is a shape-shifting warlock who can come back from the dead. And the central question is the examination of the nature of evil. Are we born evil or do we become that way? My beta reader suggested The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, which I like a lot, but it's written in the present tense and it doesn't have the cottagecore feeling of my manuscript. She lives in a bungalow at the edge of the woods. 
I believe this is my last one, which sounded very interesting to me. I was very like, ooh, sign me up for this one. So I have two that are both kind of like taking bits of each one. So the first one is Malice by Heather Walter, which very much is like a fantasy with a loner woman. And I always describe Malice as Maleficent getting her monster moment and her villain origin story because it is a sapphic retelling of Sleeping Beauty from the villain's point of view. And it's kind of like taking what you think you know about Sleeping Beauty and turning it on its head. And it is the author is talking about like, what makes a person evil? Do they become evil? Is it something born to them? And that is so explored in Malice and like such a fundamental part of the book because it's a villain origin story and that's what you're signing up for. And it's so beautiful and so good. And the sequel, Misrule, is coming out in a couple of months and I'm really excited about it. So take that. And of course, when we talk urban fantasy, we have to bring up The City We Became by N.K. Jemisin, which is just a phenomenal urban fantasy. And the idea of having a book that's like cottagecore urban fantasy with like loner, what makes a monster, what makes a man, I'm sold on board. I would combine those two books and it would have this baby. Amazing. Can you just repeat the last title? I think we lost it there. What was it? The? Mm. The City We Became by N.K. Jemison. Awesome. Awesome. Lainey, thank you so much for taking the time to look at our comps and for researching them. For our listeners, we really, really appreciate it. For our listeners, remember, we always say on the show, we love our independent bookstores. Go to them, find them, support them as much as you can, because as you can see from the show, they have such an absolute wealth of knowledge and they're so incredibly generous with their time in terms of sharing it. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The Beta Reader Matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, 
check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Lira Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.